you ever heard that line that there's wisdom in experience? People say it all the time. There's wisdom in experience. There's wisdom in experience. There's wisdom in experience. Well, guess what? That line, it's wrong. Because you and I both know there's not wisdom in experience. There's wisdom in evaluated experience. But so often, especially from a leadership perspective, we get so focused on the next project, the next task, or the next year that we forget to stop, remember, and reflect on the year that was. From the Ramsey Network, this is the Entree Leadership Podcast, where we help business leaders grow themselves, their teams, and their profits. I'm your host, Alex Judd, and 2019 was a monster year for the Entree Leadership Podcast. For starters, when we started this year, the host was Ken Coleman, and I was a listener, and I'm super grateful for the opportunity of taking over as the host of the Entree Leadership Podcast over the past few months. We've had some incredible guests, world-class CEOs, thought leaders, authors, people who are truly the best and brightest in the worlds of business and leadership today. And so today, for this last episode of 2019, we felt like it would be especially fitting to focus on some of the best moments from the Entree Leadership Podcast this year. So we selected some especially powerful, poignant, but also actionable clips that you, the audience, told us was uniquely applicable to your world and what you do every single day as a leader. So let's go ahead and jump in. This first one, man, it's with David Goggins. He's a Navy SEAL. And this guy's story hit home so powerfully, the incredible impact of perseverance, but also the voice inside your head as a leader. So here's Ken Coleman interviewing David Goggins. The military was my way to find self-esteem I had to start building on something and I started building on you know education then I had to start learning how to find mental toughness and this is where I started finding it was in the military but once again God through whenever life would start getting good for me God would throw a nice anchor Mm -hmm. and stop me right there Mm -hmm. so I'm going through pararescue training and there's this evolution called water confidence Mm -hmm. and water confidence is pretty much what gets people kicked out of special forces, special operations is the water. Mm-hmm. And they try to drown you, pretty much. This was not in the warning order. So I didn't know anything about water confidence. Long story short, what it is, is they put 16-pound weight belts on you, whatever they can do to make you uncomfortable in the water. So for six weeks of a 10-week program, I became very uncomfortable. We got down to about 25, 30 guys left. I was one of them. And getting near graduation of this program, I'm thinking, my God, I'm about to get through this. Mm-hmm. Barely, though. Water confidence is killing me. Right. They took me to medical. They drew my blood and realized I have sickle cell. Yeah. So sickle cell is a blood disease that some African-Americans have, which is not good. No. So they took me out training for a week. And when you go from being uncomfortable, that's your lifestyle, you get used to being uncomfortable. Right. When you go back to being comfortable, your mind says, I don't want to go back to being uncomfortable again. That's right. So I was like, I don't want to go back to the water. So my whole mindset was, I want to get out of this training. So I was hoping that they were going to medically disqualify me from pararescue program. That didn't happen. A week later, the doc called me in the office and said, hey, guess what, man? We're going to put you back in the training. I was like, okay, well, I've missed a week. I got about two and a half weeks left. I can do this. I went back to the CEO, the command officer. He said, hey, guess what? We're going to start you back from day one. And when he said that to me, my mind went back to the old David Goggins. So yeah. I thought I had changed. Yeah. Learning, learning how to swim, learning how to read and write. Mm-hmm. All I was doing was attacking the surface. Mm-hmm. 
I wasn't getting down into the dungeon of what was really bothering me. So whenever like tough times would happen, yep. any tough time that would, like really tough time that would happen, I would go back to the sewer of my mind. Mm-hmm. So this happened. I went back to Lion. I said, hey, you know what, CO? This guy, you know, the doc didn't know about sickle cell. He didn't give me a good reason why. He's talking about sudden death, heart attack, stroke. I'm not comfortable. So he gave me a medical from pararescue. So he allowed me to leave. Mm-hmm. But I, I really quit. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go back in the water again. Right. And that's when I went from weighing 175 pounds to 297 in about wow. three and a half years. Wow. So I did a job called TACP, yeah. controlling fast movers behind enemy lines. But that job wasn't a job that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And the spiral of depression, yeah. of trying to find things that I was comfortable doing. And whenever you find things that you're comfortable doing, you're going away from the journey of life. Mm-hmm. And I was going so far away from my journey yeah. that my weight showed my whole mindset. Yeah. Well, we're going to keep going forward, but I want to stay here for a moment because one of the chapters that I've pulled out to talk about is chapter five, the armored mind. Yes, sir. And you talk a lot about negative self-talk. Yep. And we all have a negative voice. That's right. Some of us deal with it more than others. Right. Some of us, we deal with it in different times. It manifests itself very, very different for all of us. Right here in this story, I want to go right back where you left us. Mm-hmm. You lie, you get yourself out of that particular service. Right. And then you put on all this weight over three years. Was it the negative voice? How did the negative voice lead you to the weight gain and kind of keep you in the sewer, as you say? So the most important conversation you'll ever have is the one you have with yourself. Mm-hmm. You wake up with it. You walk around with it. Eventually, you'll act on it. Mm-hmm. And my self-talk was most disgusting self-talk of all time. Mm. So the sewer of my mind, like I said, you have to go back in there and fix things. A lot of us are afraid. Like right now, 20 years ago, you wouldn't find me on this show. I was too embarrassed to tell you I stuttered. Mm -hmm. I lied. Mm -hmm. All these different things, getting beat up, getting bullied, whatever happened. But that's where the true transformation starts to happen. When you can look at, People, anybody, thousands of people, one person and say, hey, this is who I am. And this is where I have to fix myself. Mm -hmm. And this is where it really happened. I thought it happened when I was in, you know, 19, 18 years old trying to pass this military test. It happened here when I was almost 300 pounds spraying for cockroaches, Mm. making a thousand dollars a month. Mm. And, you know, people call me dumb. People, my dad called me so many things. It's not even funny. Mm. Being beat just stripped me of all self-esteem. This is when I realized I was alone Mm. on this earth. I have God alone on this earth, and I have to fix everything. So this is where I started to develop an indestructible mental toolbox. Okay. So I came home one night after spraying for cockroaches, and literally I was praying at Steak and Shake, and I would go across the street to 7-Eleven. I had a 45-minute commute home. So I worked from 11 o'clock at night to 7 o'clock in the morning. Okay. I had a 45-minute commute home, and my stop would be, you know, Steak and Shake, Chocolate and Milkshake, across the street, 7-Eleven, box of mini chocolate donuts, and I would eat that <laughs> on the way home. Yeah, sure. When I come home, I turn the TV on, I take my shake because the box of donuts were, I mean, they were killed. Oh, yeah. I kill those. Yeah. Go back to the back, turn the TV on, and take a shower. Listen to the TV while I'm taking a shower. This day, I heard these guys on the TV talking about Navy SEAL toughest class 224 so i heard stuff about navy seals mm-hmm. you know these are the baddest of the baddest yeah so i come out 
And I'm watching this show while I'm drinking my shake. And when you're watching the show of guys who are putting out there and they're quitting, quitting left and right, oh, sure. just can't handle it. They're going through hell week. They show them going through first phase, second phase, third phase, and they're dropping like flies. I looked in this one guy's eyes who was ringing the bell to quit, to put his helmet down out of Navy SEAL training, and I saw myself. And I saw what everybody said I was going to be, which was nothing. What I said I was going to be, that conversation you have, Mm -hmm. that's who I was. So that's why I lied to people to tell them a different version of the truth. Sure. I had to make all those lies reality. Mm. I had to make them real. I had to become a real person. So that's when I put in my mind that I'm going to go to the toughest military training on the planet Mm. where it has the most water. The thing I was scared of the most, mm-hmm. I had to go back. So a lot of us run away from our fears. Sure. And we box ourselves in mm-hmm. to a lifestyle of this is all we can do. Because right. I'm afraid of everything outside this box. Yeah. So I'm comfortable inside this box. I jumped the box. Oh, you did, yeah. For the first time in my life. Mentally, I jumped the yeah. box and said, hey, I, I, I got to come out here and play. Well, what's interesting to me, and I want to talk about this for a second, because you made a real decision. You want to talk about jumping in the fire that night because you're 297 pounds. Right. So there's a lot of hard work that has to be done just to get you ready, the <laughs> if you can task. be ready, That's right. to take on the SEAL training. That's right. So there was a lot of hard work. I want to point that out to our listeners <laughs> and our viewers, just to get yourself to a point where you can do what it is you set out to do. And the funny thing about that's not even funny at all. There's a good chance I might not even make it right. through Navy. So I, I had to lose 106 pounds in less than three months. Which is insane. Due to my age, due to prior service, due to the program we're shutting down that I tried to get into, the special program I was mm-hmm. trying to get into. I called up recruiters for two weeks, and every recruiter was like, hey, you know what? You No, no. Of course, yeah. One recruiter named Steven Saljo, who's in my book, he told me just to come in. And uh, he gave me a shot. So basically, I had to lose 106 pounds in less than three months. And that journey alone was very difficult. The amount of ups and downs, the amount, oh. of, the amount of mornings I would wake up and just look at my shoes. Because my first run was a quarter mile. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be four miles. Right. And I walked home and cried on my couch. Sure. Here's what I want people to hear. Sometimes, because it, it is intimidating. You just talked about it, how intimidating and how difficult right. the mountain was just to get a chance. Afraid. Yeah. Afraid. Ter- terrible fear. Yes. Yet you made a decision. It is as simple as us making a decision, I'm going to do this no matter what. Is that essentially what happened that night in the shower? You know what? It was over a period of time that voice became haunting. When I was younger, I could get away from it a little bit. Right. When it becomes something that steady just pecks at you. Yeah. All day long, mm-hmm. no matter what you're doing. Like if I was talking to you back mm-hmm. then, I was 300 pounds. Sure. I could be talking to you in this voice at the same time. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing, man? You're a loser. Where, where are you going, man? This, mm-hmm. is, this is what you could do your whole life. Right. So it'd be talking to me as I'm talking to everybody. Right. It was almost like I, I had two people. <laughs> right. And I'm like, good God, just right. shut up. Right. Just right. I, I sure. want to be comfortable. I want to yeah. be left alone. Like, I don't want to face all these things right. that, that life gave me. So you got to a point where you were sick and tired of hearing that voice. I was sick and tired of not facing the fact that I've allowed life to make me feel like a loser. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us allow life to do that, yeah. and we accept it. And a lot of us talk about how we believe in God. Mm-hmm. We believe in something higher than us. Yeah. 
if that is truth, mm-hmm. you won't allow yourself to feel that way. That's absolutely right. What's funny about failure is we're afraid to fail a lot of times because we're afraid to get those people telling us that we're not good. That's right. That we shouldn't try again. Mm-hmm. This is how I look at it. First of all, those people are going to be there. And 99.9% of those people who are in your ear after you fail haven't even tried what you're attempting to do. Mm-hmm. That's first of all. Mm-hmm. But they have a voice. Mm-hmm. So that voice needs to be, you know, we're done. You don't need to talk to me anymore. Mm. Like when I felt the pull-up record, I was going for 4,020 pull-ups. And I felt it twice before I finally got it the third time. I had so many people telling me, you can't do it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how many pull-ups have you done in your life? So that's the first thing. Look at who's talking to you negatively first. Mm-hmm. And failure is the only way to grow. Mm-hmm. The only way to grow for mm-hmm. me. Everything I've ever succeeded in, mm-hmm. three hell weeks. Yep. You know, everything, ranger school, everything I've ever failed, I failed miserably so many times. But what you do with that failure is you go back, you learn from it. And not just learn from it, I call it the live autopsy. Mm-hmm. Where you get all this stuff, you get a scratch piece of paper, and you start writing down. Don't even acknowledge the fact that you failed. Mm-hmm. You're looking at it almost like the daggone light bulb. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, this went wrong, that went wrong, that went wrong. And then you go back into it. Mm-hmm. All failure is, is a tool for success. Mm-hmm. It shows you how to get there. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to stay in the fight. Yes, That's the hard part, though. After failure... All these voices start to say, no, we're not good enough, we're not good enough, we're not good enough. No, we mm. haven't tried enough. Yeah. And that is so true. We just haven't tried enough. But, but yeah, without failure, I wouldn't be who I am today. Here at Entree Leadership, we believe that if you are a leader, you are a communicator. And earlier this year on the podcast, Craig Rochelle, he's the pastor of one of the largest churches in America, gave us a master class on exceptional communication, but also the value of intentional, relentless preparation. And so here's Ken Coleman interviewing Craig Groeschel on that very powerful and valuable topic of communication. I want you to talk to our audience about this idea of making sure before you communicate anything, you need to know what you want the audience to know, feel, and do. So let's Mm -hmm. just take you on any given platform that you're on, no field do. How does that inform even an outline and an entire talk? I want to be real clear on just what you said. But before you communicate anything, before you preach a message, before you cast vision for something in your organization, before you lead a meeting, there are three things that we want to be able to answer in communication. One is what do we want the people to know? Almost everybody in communication starts there. And then a good communicator will also say, what do I want them to do? We don't want to just communicate information. We want to communicate information that moves people toward action. The missing ingredient for a lot of communicators is not just what I want them to know and do, but what do I want them to feel? Because information just doesn't necessarily move people to action. It's emotion that moves people to action. In fact, Dave Ramsey has said it so many times. You know, he'll say things like, I want to make you angry. I want to give you passion. I want to, I want you to have some fight in you because you know you're in debt, but that doesn't change how you behave. But if I can create some sort of emotion in you, that can change how you actually behave. So in communicating a message and talking to my staff, what do I want them to know? What is the information? And we want it to be crystal clear. 
What do I want them to feel? And this really, really matters. The fastest way to change someone's behavior is not to connect with their head, but to connect with their heart. There's a lot of different studies about emotions. I think I read one article that said there's like 165 different emotions. Marketers tend to teach there's seven or eight, depending on which studies you read. But if they're marketing you to buy a product, they want you to feel maybe a fear of missing out. They want you to feel surprised, happy. They may want you to feel passion. What I want to do as a communicator is I want to really tap into the emotion that I want people to feel. When I'm working with our communicators, one thing that I'll do is I'll tell them this, the hat you wear determines the emotions people feel. I'll say it again. The hat that you wear determines the emotions that you feel. For example, right now when we're talking, I could essentially put on a different pretend hat. I could be talking to you from a perspective of a dad. I could be talking to you from a perspective of a husband. I could be talking to you from a perspective of a pastor. I could be talking to you from a perspective of a business leader. I could be talking to you from a perspective of a friend. The hat that I wear determines the emotion you feel. So if I'm giving an announcement at church, I might say, as your pastor, this is why this is important. That helps you feel one's emotion. I could say, hey, as a fellow dad, I get it wrong all the time, and this is why this is important to you. I might say, hey, as someone who just cares about you, here's what I'm going to tell you. And those different approaches would change the emotion that we feel. Sometimes I want people to feel a righteous anger that's going to move somebody. Sometimes I might want them to feel a fear of missing out. Sometimes I might want them to feel the joy of being part of something bigger than themselves. But I want to go into the communication, what do I want them to know, what do I want them to feel, and then very, very clearly, what do I want them to do? When I'm working with our pastors, a lot of times they'll give announcements. We do not ever announce. What we do is we lead people toward an action. And so I can tell them about an event on a certain day or about a certain opportunity, but unless I'm really crystal clear on the do, what's the action step, I've just wasted everybody's time. That's why it's what I want them to know, feel, and do. If you can answer those three questions before a podcast, before a meeting, before an interview, before vision casting, before a planning session, before a sermon, before leading people toward an outcome, that'll drastically change how people hear it. Just because you said it, doesn't mean they heard it, doesn't mean they believe it, or doesn't mean they'll do it. I'll tell our team that all the time. Just because you said it, doesn't mean they heard it, doesn't mean they believe it, or doesn't mean they'll do it. We want to create the emotion that leads to the action. Yeah, I want to stay right there because I was listening, and I I wanted to ask, you said, believe it, then do it. The order of no field do, is that intentional, Craig, for the communicator because we need to feel something, an emotion leads to thought change, and then thought change leads to actual action? Or do I have that mixed up a little bit? I'm just curious, does it go both ways? Or is it that we've got to change the way people feel in order to change the way they think? And then if we change the way they think, we can change the way they act. Just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I I think you could debate it in any different way. I think multiple combinations would work. But when I look at what Dave does, because I'm I'm not only a fan of what he does, I'm also a student and I'm a product, meaning... Mm -hmm. I've listened to him since I was, think I was 28 years of age. And so it seems to me what he does and what most effective communicators do and what naturally I end up doing is get some sort of information across. For example, okay, you're in debt, so you're worried, you're stressed. This is a weight on you. What would it feel like if you weren't? Are you sick and tired of it? So first we've got the acknowledgement. Here's the communication of the what. Mm -hmm. Then I've got the emotion, which is I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm Mm -hmm. sick and tired of being broke. Then we've got the application. Let's do a $1,000 emergency fund. Let's do the debt snowball. Let's move forward. 
And so I think generally speaking, and there would be exceptions, I generally think it's some sort of what, here's what I want you to know, mm-hmm. followed immediately by the feel, and then the do becomes so much more doable. For example, if, um, let's say, Ken, you're dangerously overweight, you probably know that right now. So what I've got to do is I've got to create an emotion. You may not get to be there for your grandkids. That's creating an emotion. Then you may get on the treadmill or push the bread aside because the emotion connected with the knowledge created the action. And so I think, you know, in some form or fashion, the direct communication mixed with the emotion up front matters, at least to the action. Well, it was the speech heard around the world. Art Williams is the billionaire founder of A.L. Williams, and his attitude, grit, and absolute dogged perseverance was behind turning the entire life insurance industry upside down. And he shared that story and his life advice from the Entree Leadership Summit stage, and he absolutely brought the house down, folks. It was one of my favorite moments, but also one of the most powerful moments in Entree Leadership event history. So, from the Entree Leadership Summit 2019 stage, here is Art Williams. Almost everybody does almost everything you need to do to win. Almost everybody gets there. Almost everybody's over the hump. Almost everybody has it going. Almost is a way of life to almost everybody, but the winners, they do it. What do they do? They do whatever it takes to get the job done. They do it and do it and do it and do it until the job gets done. We need leaders who can do it. If you want to become somebody, do it. If you want to become financially independent, do it. I hear too much talk around A.O. Williams. You need to do it and then talk. I hear people say, Art, you can count on me. Great. Just do it. Art, I'm going to be a sales leader in 30 days. Wonderful. Just do it. Art, our Life Underwriter Association is going to run all you termites out of the business. Super duper. Just do it. Boy, Art, if I could just have one good month, I know I could make it big. Great. Just do it. Art, if I could just pay off this debt, I could really go. We'll do it. Art, if I could just sell my house, do it. But houses ain't selling. Do it anyway. Art, I'm not making any money. What can I do? You just do it. Do what, Art? You do it and do it and do it. Art, when I get to be a vice president, can I quit doing it? Nope. Art, I guarantee I'm going to win this contest. Great. Just do it. Art, I'm over the hump. Now watch my smoke. Wonderful. Just do it. Art, I want to make it so bad I can taste it what I do. You just do it. Art, I'm hurting. I don't know if I can keep on keeping on what I do. You just do it. Do what, Art? You do it and do it and do it. Art, all my life I wanted to be somebody important. We'll do it then. Art, I'm going to recruit 20 people this month. Wonderful. Just do it. Art, I'm going to save money so I don't ever have to go through this again. Great. Just do it. I'm hurting, Art. I'm really hurting what I do. You just do it. Art, I don't feel like I've had enough training what I do. You just do it. Art, my manager don't give me enough help what I do. You just do it. Art, I won every award at my former company. You don't mean somebody like me has got to start off down there and do it, do you? Yep, you really got to do it. Art, Art, what's the primary difference between winners and losers? The winners do it. They do it. 
and do it and do it and do it until the job gets done. And then they talk about how great it is to have achieved something unique and how glad they are that they didn't quit like everybody else and how wonderful it is to finally be somebody they're proud of. Thank you. Well, this next one is really special. David Sawyers is the former chief marketing officer at Chick-fil-A. And in his conversation with Ken Coleman, he shared the heart, but also the mindset shift that's behind the exponential growth and success of the third largest restaurant chain in America. So here's David Sawyers talking about the source of Chick-fil-A's success. For the first 20 years of Chick-fil-A's existence, We were exclusively in shopping malls. 100% of the locations were in shopping malls. And one of the ways I found that you grow a business is to find the cultural waves and ride them. And one of the cultural waves at that time, this would have been the 80s to let's call it the year 2000, was the what they called the mauling of America. Mm. You know, all these regional shopping malls were being built in cities across the country. And so all of our locations were kind of following that trend and we were making multiple deals in shopping malls to kind of get established across the country. And so we were limited to the amount of business we could do in a shopping mall. And at that time, the main focus was on the food. You know, there was a presidential candidate that said it's the economy stupid. Mm. Well, for us, it was the food stupid. Mm. You know, so we really focused on the food and getting the food right, getting the quality of the food right. Even our marketing was all about sampling and what we called uh, be our guest cards where we invite people in for free. Everything was related to the food. And that's how we kind of got to the uh, kind of the first tier of our success. But along the way, and interestingly, the timing of this was about the year 2007. And if you'll remember in the year 2007, 2008, that's when we had a great economic crash Mm -hmm. in the United States. And in the midst of that, Truett and Dan got the crazy idea that where we really needed to go next was service. And, you know, interestingly, we look back on it now, it looks like a brilliant idea, but at the time it looked like the stupidest idea you could imagine. And the reason it looks stupid is, think about the restaurant business. If you just want great service, what kind of restaurant would you choose? You know, you would choose a white tablecloth. Mm-hmm. You would choose a fast cash somewhere where they've got, where it's designed for service and you pay for service. You know, that same $3 chicken breast at Chick-fil-A costs you $15 or $20 in a fine dining restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you pay for that service. So almost by definition, when people came to fast food, they weren't looking for service. They were looking for food fast, mm-hmm. you know. But Truett and Dan decided we were going to move forward on a service initiative. We called it second mile service. And we spent millions of dollars over the next two or three years bringing in operators from all over the country, their team members from all over the country, did a major training initiative around service that a lot of people thought was crazy and was particularly crazy at that time because what most of our competitors were doing we're cutting back on hours, cutting back on training. Anything related to do with people, those were the things we were cutting back on, and we were fast-forwarding on that. So now, fast-forward to you know, 10, 15 years later, we're more known for our service than we are our food. Mm. Literally, when we look at the surveys and we look at what is creating value for people, more people feel like our service is creating value than our food. Wow. So we've gone from it's the food stupid to more it's the service stupid and actually the combination of the two. And then layered on top of that, because I think one of the Chick-fil-A's philosophies is we're in this business to create value for customers. 
I think a lot of businesses are started as what I would call a get rich scheme. Mm. People get in business because they want to get rich. And if they're going to get rich, they're going to get rich off of other people, right? They're going to get rich off of customers, off of employees, off of suppliers, off of communities. And so if you're in the get rich business, your mindset is always, how are we going to extract more value from people? What I saw modeled at Chick-fil-A and by the Kathy family is the polar opposite of that. If most people are in the get rich business, I would tell you that Chick-fil-A has been in the be rich business. See, getting rich and being rich are polar opposites. Mm. Getting rich is about enriching your life at the expense of others. Being rich is about using what you've been given to enrich the lives of those you serve. And so what I saw modeled at Chick-fil-A was a be rich business. And this be rich business would kind of ask the question, what can we do to be rich toward our employees? What can we do to be rich toward our customers? What can we do to be rich toward our suppliers? What can we do to be rich toward our communities. And in the end, what happens is if you can be rich toward all those groups, your getting rich will never be a problem. Mm. But if you focus on getting rich, being rich may never happen. Well, this next one was one of my first conversations on the Entree Leadership Podcast, and it was with personality guru and Enneagram expert, Ian Cron. And he taught us how unique motives and communication and perspectives all affect leadership and the workplace. I learned a ton from this conversation. I know you're going to as well. Here's the interview with Ian Cron. Okay, so from a leadership perspective, the recognition that everyone that works for me or that works with me has a unique motive, they have a unique power source that they're plugged into, Mm -hmm. how should that affect leadership? Oh, yeah. Well, let's say you were working for me, right? You're a three on the Enneagram. Let's say I know that, right? And I'm a self-aware person, a self-aware leader who really cares deeply about you thriving and flourishing in the world, right? Yes. I want to motivate you. Okay. I know that to get you to perform optimally, then I probably ought to set up a performance-based merit system, right? Yep. Okay. (laughs) You're hitting the nail on the head already. I ought to talk to you about promotions and bonuses, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. I ought to set up a system for you because I know that part of what drives you or excites you, that lights you up, is that. Yeah. That those types of things matter to you. If you were a five on the Enneagram or a different type of human being, I wouldn't do that. You know what I mean? You'd do something different. Totally. If you were, let's say, I realize not everyone who's listening is an Enneagram understands it, but there are some people, if they want a bonus, they want more autonomy. They want to work from Starbucks. They want to work from home. They're more private than you are. They're not people people. You know what I'm saying? So I would tell that, I would say, don't make this poor guy work in an open workspace. Let him go work at Starbucks in the corner. You know what I mean? Like with, and that would be the motivator. That would be the driver. Totally. It would be a huge piece of it. They're very, there are certain people who are just very private. So again, it starts with understanding, number one, yourself, but then understanding the people you work with and really starting yes. to get to know what is driving them. Yes. And things like the Enneagram can help you have a template. So like, all right, so I work with lots of companies. I go in and I throw out the Enneagram. I talk to them about nine different personality styles. Yeah. Two, I've never had someone walk out saying, oh, I don't think that's true, or I, don't, I didn't relate to one of those, right? I go back for follow-ups, and people are like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Like, now I understand why that person needs to do this or that. Now I know how to help this person do that. Yeah. Now, 
suddenly like, I'm not fooling you. This is going to sound so overstated, but I'm just telling the truth and I hate overstatements. But people have this sort of, you know, scales falling from the eyes moment with it. It's like, oh, you mean the things that motivate Alex are not the things that motivate Ian and the things that delight you don't delight me. And if I'm a leader and I just think everything that delights me should delight everybody else, that's not good. And you're not going to maximize your organization that way. No, no, not at all. So when you know other people, again, you talk about getting rid of inefficiencies, getting rid of conflict, getting rid of, you know, toxic cultures where people feel bullied. Talk about getting rid of everything that hinders forward movement because you're spending all this time because communication styles are different. People don't understand how each other communicate. You can eliminate a lot of this stuff by using things like the Enneagram mm. and, and just developing self-knowledge and getting and also holding it up to your team as a value. Yeah. And here's why I say self-knowledge in addition to self-awareness. Again, self-knowledge is a precursor to self-awareness. Every time in the business literature these days I'm reading, you need more self-awareness, you need self-awareness. I'm like, no, wait a minute. You need self-knowledge first. There's no point in having self-awareness if you don't have a data set to work with. What am I supposed to be aware of yeah. if I don't know who I am? Mm. If I don't know my weaknesses, what should activate my self-awareness when I see it happen? So in other yeah. words, it's like you got to do the hard work of self-knowledge before you can Jump enjoy the benefits of an activated self-awareness. Well, he's been on this podcast many times, and many of you have also seen him on our event stages. Simon Sinek is one of the great thought leaders of our time. And in his conversation with Ken Coleman, he shared a story that perfectly illustrates how leadership is responsible for creating an environment where powerful, valuable, and trust-filled work can occur, regardless of industry. So here is the one and only Simon Sinek. We know we're on a trusting team when we can raise our hands and say, I made a mistake, or you promoted me to a position where I don't feel like I know what I'm doing, or I'm having trouble at home and it's affecting my work, or I'm scared, or I need help, without any fear of humiliation or retribution. In fact, we say these things with absolute confidence that those around us, our bosses, our colleagues will rush to support us. I had, uh, you know, I, I stayed at the Four Seasons in Las Vegas. I was there on a business trip, and they happened to have a coffee bar in the in the lobby there. And so one afternoon, I went and bought myself a cup of coffee. And the barista working that day was a kid named Noah. And Noah was funny and engaging. And I spent far too long there <laughs> buying a cup of coffee because I just so enjoyed Noah's company. And as is my nature, I asked Noah, you know, do you like your job? And without skipping a beat, Noah said, I love my job. Now, in my line of work, that's significant because like is rational and love is emotional. Like is, you know, I like my job. I like the people I work with. I like the challenge. I get paid well. I like my job. Love is a higher order connection. It's like, you know, do you love your wife? Yeah, I like her a lot. You know, it's a different standard. Noah said, I love my job. So immediately I followed up and said, tell me specifically what the Four Seasons is doing that you would say to me, you love your job. And he said that throughout the day, Leaders will, his managers will walk past him and ask him if there's anything he needs to do his job better. If there's anything they can do to help. Not just his manager, any manager. Hmm. And then he said, I also work for a different hotel. I have a second job. And there the managers walk past us and catch us when we do things wrong. They drive us to make the numbers. There I like to keep my head below their radar and just get through the day. Only at the four seasons, he said, do I feel I can be myself. Hmm. Noah works on a trusting team. 
And if you think about it, the experience that I will have, whether I meet him at the Four Seasons or the other hotel, will be profoundly different. Not because of him, but because of the leadership environment that he's been asked to work. Right? And so often when we have performance issues, the first thing we do is blame our people. Right? What's wrong with my people? And I get questions like this all the time. You know, how do I get the most out of my people? The people are not a towel that you wring them tight to get the most out of them. Mm. The correct question is, how do I create an environment in which my people can work at their natural best? And trust is king. Because when we feel trust on the team, we will ask for help. We will say we, we don't know the job we're doing and we need more training. We will say we're scared. We will admit when we make mistakes so somebody can help us fix them. Because if we don't have trusting teams in our companies, what we do have is a group of people who are showing up to work every single day, lying, hiding, and faking. They're hiding their mistakes. They're not admitting that they don't know what they're doing. And they're never going to ask for help. Well, how long is that going to last? You know, yeah. And cracks start to show up and then eventually those cracks get bigger and eventually things break. And again, it's not the people's fault. It's because we created an environment, you know, leaders create an environment where they couldn't be honest for fear of losing their jobs or getting in trouble or finding themselves on some short list for the next round of layoffs. So trusting teams are absolutely essential in the infinite game because sometimes we can't be there to fix every problem and we need our people to, to be self-sufficient. That's huge. Folks, we've got to go back to what Simon said earlier. Noah's a great illustration there of trust leading to cooperation and then innovation at the other hotel, Simon, he wants to go below the radar. He doesn't even want to be noticed. Therefore, there can't be cooperation. And if there's not cooperation, how in the world can you innovate if you don't know what works on the front line? And Noah is the front line. He's the guy dealing with you and making you feel wonderful. He's probably one of the lowest paid employees in the entire company. Exactly. He's That's a right. barista at the Four Seasons, right? And I am going around on, on interviews like yours talking about how amazing the Four Seasons is because of one of the lowest paid employees in the company, because he just loves coming to work and feels valued and valuable, where, you know, I would never talk about the other company, Mm -hmm. and and yet I'm sure there's very good people who work there, and it's simply because of the leadership environment that allowed Noah to be himself, and it allowed Noah to, to treat me as a human being. Hey, folks, I started Ramsey Solutions on a card table 30 years ago. Over that time, we had too many different systems, and they slowed us down. That's why we now use NetSuite. NetSuite works for us, and it'll make a difference for your business, too. Whether you're just starting out or you're well on your way to becoming a multimillion-dollar company, NetSuite can scale with you to help communicate across departments and plan ahead better. See, you know your day-to-day forward and backward. But stuff like analytics, accounting, human capital management, all that might be another story. Or maybe you're not tech savvy. Well, all that's okay. NetSuite will help your company in your situation increase your speed. More than 37,000 companies use NetSuite to know their numbers. And right now you can download NetSuite's free KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance at netsuite.com slash Ramsey. That's netsuite.com slash Ramsey. This episode is brought to you by Trainual. Even when you're great at running the day-to-day, a lot of leaders struggle to delegate. But delegation is a critical leadership skill, and empowering your team by building that skill just takes having the right system in place. Well, Trainual is that system, and it's a game changer. Trainual is an easy-to-use app that helps document and organize everything about your company in one place. 
clear outlines for every role and responsibility, step-by-step training for all your SOPs and employee handbook content, an org chart and directory. You can build accountability tests. Employees can even use Trainual's powerful search to answer their own questions. Companies using Trainual are cutting training time and related costs by up to 75%. Get started with over 300 templates and their world-class support. It's time to get your entire team playing from the same playbook. Visit trainual.com slash entree today for a demo and get 15% off your first year with code entree15. That's 15% off at T-R-A-I-N-U-A-L dot com slash entree with code E-N-T-R-E-1-5. This next conversation was one of my personal favorites this year. Kat Cole has lived an incredible life, and her career trajectory is absolutely insane. She now serves as the COO and president of North America for Focus Brands. And in this conversation, she taught us of a valuable combination of four qualities, which she says make the difference in leadership, business, and life. So teaching on those four qualities, here is Kat Cole. I typically lay out a matrix of four qualities. So on one side is courage and confidence. On the other side, humility and curiosity. Mm. Those four things may seem similar to each other or different in some ways. They're quite distinct. So courage and confidence sometimes get confused with each other. They're related, but they're very distinct. And humility and curiosity are related, but also very distinct. And courage is the ability to break through very natural fear to speak up, step up, do something. Confidence is the belief in self that this is going to work out. So they're very different things, but clearly they're related. And when they're combined, they can be very powerful. Similarly, humility, you know, this mindset that there's always something I can learn and a genuine gratitude and appreciation for the value of others. And then curiosity being simply the desire to learn. So again, those two things, some people say, oh, well, aren't those kind of the same? They're quite different, but when put together, very powerful. And what I have learned is that when I or any human over-indexes on courage and confidence or over-indexes on the humility and curiosity side. So that's not think of a scale or a range and courage and confidence are on one side and humility and curiosity are on the other. Um, if, if I over-index on one of those groups without it being balanced by the other, harmonized with the other, those of Winton I have really made my largest mistakes. So people who over-index on courage and confidence without humility and curiosity in the picture, are bulls in a china shop. And they are courageous because they will speak up and do things, and they are confident and they believe in themselves. But if they lack the humility and curiosity to learn and bring others along and value others around them, maybe they'll get things done in the short term, but people won't follow them for very long, and they'll actually miss out on incredibly valuable learning and insights. Similarly, if people over-index on humility and curiosity— and no courage and confidence, then you're just a student. And nothing wrong with being in a phase of your life where you're a student, but when you're in a position of taking action and leadership, 
certainly all four, that whole quadrant, being optimized in those things as much as you can, being self-aware of when you're bringing some forward versus not, the optimal combination of those seems to lead to the most effective humans. And that was true. I could see that when I was opening restaurants around the world. I learned that as a waitress and certainly as an executive running a large company, I see that every day, right? People who just come in and make decisions and don't include others and don't have humility, doesn't matter if they're a president or a waitress, the same pattern follows. They'll get something done in the short term and people won't want them on their team in the long term. Likewise, leaders who have a seat at the table but are just students and don't use the very valuable position that they're holding to be courageous and to have confidence in their ability to make change, they're taking up a seat. And I'd rather get them out of that seat and have someone there who has a better blend of humility and curiosity with courage and confidence. That's so powerful. And I think that mental model of thinking it as a spectrum, where do I land on this spectrum, is so perfect Specifically, I think we interact with a lot of business owners, business leaders, highly growth-oriented people that sometimes they put too much weight on the humility and curiosity side. Of course, you need to be humble and curious, but at the same time, leadership demands boldness. So how do you cultivate the courage and confidence necessary to find that sweet spot in the middle of that framework? I think the reason maybe those that you work with are focused so much on humility and curiosity is because the historic generation of leaders have way over-indexed on courage and confidence. Like too much disproportionately valued those things over the other things? Right. So just think of two generations ago leadership, command and control Mm. versus influence. And what was viewed as a leader a few generations ago or one generation ago. It's the male, older, in charge, making decisions lead from the front. I can understand how some organizations in an effort to modernize leadership and an effort to bring a more holistic view might have become, as a result, obsessed with the humility and curiosity side. So I I get it. I think the world and generations of leadership are changing and evolving. And certainly, if organizations are spending so much time on humility and curiosity, they could over-index on that and then miss the courage and confidence piece that's needed. So I would encourage people who are listening to not believe it should be one way or the other. The goal is seeking an optimal blend, self-awareness, and ability to bring forward these traits at an optimal level. So if you're in the, we're overly humble and curious camp, then yes, work on courage and confidence. If you've got some leaders that are bulls in a China shop, they need to work on humility and curiosity. But your question was specifically in the scenario where people are focusing on humility and curiosity too much. How do they focus on courage and confidence? And so one, I would just say, watch out because sometimes you can do that and embolden people who are already way too much in the courage and confidence camp. (laughs) So it's a pendulum or people will say, oh, I just need more courage. In reality, they need a dose of humility, huh? It's the blend. And I, I think in order to build any of these traits in a leader, one, they need to see the behavior modeled by others in the organization. There's very few things that provide better skill building than seeing it modeled. 
from various leaders. So speaking up, speaking out, believing in oneself, putting forward an idea or a point of view when it's unpopular or going against the grain, talking about sensitive issues. You know, those are, are things that if leaders who are typically only humble and curious see them modeled, they start to build more comfort in what that might look like for them. And then the second is in types of coaching or one-on-ones or development is specifically calling it out with leaders saying, hey, I know this is on your mind, yet you didn't bring it forward. Can you tell me why? Because the line that I use regularly is, I would be failing you if, Mm -hmm. and I would be failing you, you, the royal you, you know, the organization, the person, whatever, I would be failing you if I didn't bring something up. I would be failing you if I didn't have this difficult conversation. Instead of being so humble and so curious and thinking, oh, who am I to bring this up? I'm new here, or I'm so young, or I'm different. And those are natural thoughts that come into people's minds. And the way to to cure that sickness is to convince yourself that you're actually failing the organization if you don't bring forward something that might be a bit uncomfortable. Well, can I be honest with you real quick? When the team told me that they had booked Stephen Pressfield, I almost did a backflip. And I can't do a backflip, folks. That's how excited I was. You see, Stephen Pressfield is one of the great writers and creative minds in the world today. And quite frankly, he doesn't do many interviews. So we were so grateful when he agreed to come on to the Entree Leadership Podcast. And he introduced me and our entire audience to a force which he has identified, which fights against every person who sets out to do work that actually matters. And that force, as you will hear in this conversation, is called resistance. As a writer, which I am, one of the first things that you realize is that when you sit down to the blank page, there's some kind of a force there that's kind of a repelling force mm. trying to make you go have a drink or <laughs> do something, do anything else, you know, take the day off, whatever. And um, I, I always thought it was unique to me alone. I thought, well, I mean, I must be the only one feeling this thing. But when I wrote The War of Art, I gave a name to it and I called it Resistance with a capital R because that's what it kind of feels like to me. It's like it's resisting this force, this invisible force is resisting mm. my efforts to put something down on the page. And to I thought when I wrote The War of Art that it would be a book only for writers, that only writers would be interested. Yeah. And I was kind of amazed to discover that other creative people, actors, photographers, film people, stuff like that. And then was really interesting to me realized that entrepreneurs, which I had never even thought of, but it does make sense anytime you try to move from a lower level to a higher level in your life, in, on the soul level of your life. Mm. In other words, if you're, if you're an artist, you're trying to go from the blank canvas to a painting to something that's there. This force of resistance appears to stop you or to try to stop you. And it seems to me that many, many, many millions of people have been defeated by this and didn't even know that it existed, didn't mm. even have a name. And is that maybe part of the sinister part of it is that you can go your entire life without even realizing this exists? Absolutely. I mean, I certainly never knew it. Resistance kind of kicked my butt for like about seven years, I would say, of, you know, a kind of a dark side journey Mm. where before I sort of realized, ah, there is this force that nobody told me about in school. Nobody taught me about anywhere. And I better learn to get a handle on this if I'm ever going to be able to do my work. 
How do people experience resistance just day to day? Okay, it's a great question. It's a voice in your head. And the voice in your head says something like, you're a bum, you're a loser. If you're, Let's say you're going to write a book. Mm. It says to you, where did you get the idea that you could write this book? This idea has been done a thousand times. You're never going to do it any, any <laughs> you're better than like it's someone already. that has heard this voice before. <laughs> Always, right? And But it's a voice of you know discouragement and stuff like that. It's a fear is its constant thing. You know, you're, you're going to fail. You're going to embarrass yourself. You know, what? where do you come off thinking you can pull this thing off? The trick about resistance is that when you hear this voice in your head, you think it's your own thoughts. You think it's your own objective thoughts, like you're objectively analyzing your own capacities, but it's mm-hmm. not your own objective thoughts. It's resistance. It's this, this force that exists. And I can tell you from all the feedback I've gotten, the voice of resistance is the same in everybody's head, except that it, it's so diabolical that it can tailor itself to you specifically. It'll tell you you're too fat to have a show on – or you know, or you're too old or you're too ugly or you're too this and that, you whatever. You go to college. You can't start that business. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And I think to your point, I can think back to points in my own life where – I will experience what you're talking about, but I'll look at it and I'll call it me being realistic or me being rational. Exactly. And you're, in-, in other words, you're believing this voice in your head that it's you. It's your thoughts. They say, you know, in meditation, I'm not a big meditator, yeah. but from what I've read, that you sit there and you're trying to empty your mind of thoughts, right? And these thoughts keep coming and they're usually just distracting, dumb thoughts. And you think they're your thoughts, but in fact, as a meditation teacher would teach you, they're just kind of generic chatter. And you just really want to just let them kind of go and pass right through like clouds passing across the sky. And it's the same with that voice that you heard in your head. Mm. And so it can take many forms. I know you already mentioned it. It seems like it can take the form of something material, physical, something that you're eating, something that you're drinking, maybe not going to them. It can be a voice. It takes many forms. Is that yeah, right? It takes many forms. But usually it's that voice in your head or that feeling of fear in your belly, you know, I guess for entrepreneurs, if you're thinking of starting a business or taking a business to the next level, that's another case of kind of advancing on the soul level, going from a lower level to a higher level and resistance is going to kick in and that voice will stay to you, you know, what do you dream that you're going to pull this off? You know, you were great at this level maybe, but you can't take it to the next level, et cetera, et cetera. And so do you believe that at any given point in their life, everyone has experienced, whether consciously or unconsciously, everyone has experienced what it's like to be trapped by resistance? I think so. Mm. I mean, obviously, I can't look into everybody's yeah. brain, but I certainly get a million times of feedback you know, from, from people, and it's always the same voice and always the same phenomenon. What did that look like for you? Can you take us to the point in your life where you – maybe crossed over from being unconsciously to consciously aware that you're being trapped by this thing? Well, for me, it was uh, the first novel that I ever tried to write as a young guy. I worked for about two years on it. It was like 99.9% of the way through. And this, some de- the devil or whatever, I just blew it up, blew it up and blew up my entire, you know, I, I was married. I blew up my marriage. Bump it, bump it. Bump, like real, self-sabotage? Yeah, self, that's exactly the word. In fact, resistance is self-sabotage. And that sort of sent me off on a kind of a downward spiral that carried me 
to a lot of places I didn't want to go. And finally, I just sort of, I just sort of realized that there, there was this force and that it had taken me by surprise. I wasn't ready for it. If I had known that that was coming, it would have been a different story. And I sort of said, I've, I've just got to like an alcoholic, like somebody realizing that they have a problem with alcohol where you they sort of admit to themselves, I've got a problem. This is more than I can handle. That sort of was my realization. That, And I thought it was unique to me at that time. I didn't realize that it was universal, but but it is. Mm. So universal affects anyone trying to do something meaningful. What What is it keeping us from? It's almost like you describe it as this thing that has this motive, and then you say, like, we're all engaged in this war that we're fighting. So what are we fighting for that the enemy or the resistance is keeping us from? I'm a believer that we all come into this life with a calling, Hmm. with work that we have to do. It might be artistic work or it might be entrepreneurial work. It might be something – it might be raising children or it might be something, you know, helping people in in one way or another. But we do have – our work that we should be doing. And resistance's entire job, in my opinion, is to stop us from doing our work. That voice that says you're not worthy, you're not good enough, that's just trying to stop us. Does or, it still feel that way when yeah, you see a blank never page? Gets, never gets any easier. Never gets any easier. I've been <laughs> doing it for 50 years. It never. The only way it gets easier is that you know you've defeated it in the past, mm-hmm. But it never gets any easier. In fact, it gets a little more diabolical because I almost can personify resistance. It seems it's it's an intelligent force that can adapt and be creative and change shapes and shift shapes. Uh, so, yeah, it doesn't get any easier. No. Inevitably, we're faced with this choice, and it's almost this perfect dichotomy that we can go one of two ways. And the way you lay it out is the amateur or the professional. So – I'd love for you to describe what are the core differences or what really is your definition of an amateur versus your definition of a professional? When we're confronted with this negative force of resistance, self-sabotage, yeah. and we fail to do, we stop 99% of the way through, we sabotage ourselves. There's usually two ways we look at ourselves at that failure. One way is to say that uh, there's something wrong with us. We're sick. It's a kind of a therapeutic model, and we need therapy. We need work. We need to find out what sort of uh, failing we have. That's one way of looking at it, which is very judgmental, very negative, and doesn't help us at all. The other way to look at it, that we look at it is we say we're sinful. Mm. There's something wrong with us. We need to be chastised or do a penance or something like that. And I think that also is not helpful at all because it's, again, it's judgmental. We're judging ourselves. So what sort of worked for me was a third way of looking at it. And that was that if we're failing, it's because we're thinking like amateurs. And if we want to correct ourselves, we need to flip the switch in our mind and start thinking like professionals. For instance, in our regular jobs, we're all professionals at that, right? If we're yeah. working for a living for someone else. And so one of the things we do is we show up every day. We have to show up every day, right? Period. Otherwise, we get fired, yeah. right? We can't go home at 2 in the afternoon or we'll yeah. get fired for that. And we organize ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in that case, where we're working for someone else, we're applying a professional mindset 
from an external point of view. It's being externally imposed on us. Like people in the military oftentimes, you know, you wake up in the morning, there's a plan of the day, there's a uniform of the day, you're told exactly what to do. Oh, right? and there's so many – you make your bed, you right. wear your clothes this way, you lace your boots this your way. Your hair is cut so you have an externally imposed structure on you. When you turn pro, you impose that structure on yourselves. Another thing of an amateur is, or someone with an amateur mindset, which of course was me for years and years, if you wake up in the morning and you're not in the mood or you're sick, you got the flu, you say, well, I'll take today off, you know, but would Kobe Bryant take the day off? You know, would LeBron James, would Tom Brady take the day off? They know that they have to play hurt and they know that adversity is just part of the game Mm. and they have to deal with adversity. So an amateur mindset is kind of a weekend warrior. When the winds are against you, you bail, you know? And like I said, when I finished that book 99% of the way and blew it up, that was total amateur behavior. And if I was, had been a pro or had been thinking like a pro, I would have just said, Hey, we're this far away from the end, buckle up and do it. You know? So I think for me, that was a non-judgmental way of moving from a wrong way of doing something or a way that wasn't working to a way that did work to say, okay, I'm through being an amateur. I'm now going to think of myself as a professional. And the other great thing about it is it's free. You don't need to have – nobody has to certify you. You don't have to take a class. You choose All, to be a professional. You choose and you can do it at any moment, right? This minute you can do it. Well, anyway, that's the difference between amateurs and pros in my opinion. This next one was so cool. It aired just a few weeks ago, and it was with Patrick Yumel, who is the president of the Mina Group, which is one of the largest privately owned restaurant groups in the world. And we sat down with him at the top of the JW Marriott here in Nashville at their restaurant, Bourbon Steak, and he explained to us how he leads and is responsible for the establishment, operations, culture, and leadership of all 44 world-class restaurants that make up the Mina Group. I learned so much from this conversation. There's so much leadership gold in Patrick's perspective. So here is Patrick Yumel. The only way for anybody to scale is through, through people. In my opinion, we've got a team of the most wildly talented hospitality professionals in the world that are all passionate about being you know, custodians of our legacy are they're all passionate about what we believe in. And they have what I like to call the champion spirit, which means that they're passionate about being great in everything they do. It doesn't mean that they're going to be great in everything they do, but it means if it's worth them doing, it's worth them doing as best as possible. It's kind of like that, that Zen Buddhist saying, how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm. And our team really, you know, they keep score and it's not about their, you know, they're not really looking at, their competitors, they're keeping score against themselves in how well they're performing on a daily basis, on a minute by minute basis. You know, we, we have another saying it's one guest, one table, one service, one day, you know, and it's thinking about how we can focus on the guest, the table. You know, once you've got the guest nailed and you're in good sync and harmony with that experience, then it's the table's experience. And then now you've got the table, now you've got the whole restaurant and the service, and it's one day at a time, one week at a time. So we have that mentality where, you know, the only thing that matters is now. Mm. When we're in service, we're not thinking about all the other things for tomorrow. It's what what matters is what's in front of us right now, and we're going to execute it as best as possible. And then, you know, coupled that with 
another thing we have is which is called kaizen, which is the Japanese term for continual improvement. And kaizen. Right. And, you know, it was something that Japanese auto manufacturing used. It was, you know, daily improvements. Uh, they used that mentality to assert American auto manufacturing back in the 60s, 70s. But for us, it's, you know, every single day we're going to find a way to improve, whether it's, you know, improve a system, improve our, our mental outlook and, and improve the way we communicate, improve how we take reservations, how we clear a table. Just one little thing at a time, we're going to figure out a way to improve on a daily basis. And we talked earlier, just, you know, you're, you're a runner and a triathlete. You know, just as well as anybody that the moment you stop trying to improve as an athlete, is the you can't just stay oh, the same. There is no stagnancy. You're there is either no, moving right. forward or backward, but right. you're never staying the same. Right, because the moment you hit stagnancy is the moment atrophy sets in mm. and deterioration happens. And, and that occurs in a team too. Absolutely. The moment that people sit on their heels and they feel comfortable and they feel fat and happy and they don't think that they have to improve is the moment that they start regressing. Wow. So your entire business model rises or falls on your ability to recruit, hire, and develop great people. What are you looking for in the hiring process? And now you go and launch a restaurant. What are the qualities and the skills that you're looking for to make sure that someone belongs as a part of the MENA group team? Obviously, there's always some aptitudinal requirements. Whether it's uh, someone being a manager, they've got to have some leadership experience, or if it's a cook, they've got to know how to cook, and they have to have knife skills. But it's really more attitude than aptitude. And for us, you know, one, people have to love to give more than they get, right? The people that work in that are successful in the hospitality business are the people that love giving gifts, right? You know, and they feel uncomfortable getting gifts. So they're, they're, you know, they can't wait for it to be your birthday or for it to be Christmas or, or whatever it is. So they can think about what they're going to get you. And they're so excited about what they got you and they have obsessed over it and they can't wait to see the look on your face. These are the people that thrive within our environment, right? Because that's what hospitality is. Hospitality is giving. Um, it's the people that, you know, go to a party and they end up wearing a lampshade on their head because they're the people that walk into a room and everybody's glad that they're there. And so those aren't, you can't really measure that. You can only get that from really understanding emotionally who people are. For us, it's, there's a certain humility that's necessary because, you know, what we do, we surf and you've got to be humble in that. You can't have arrogance with serving. But with that said, it's something that's extremely noble. You know, we mentioned earlier, when people come out to eat and when they go to your restaurants, that's the highlight of their day or it's the highlight of their week or the highlight of their month. And we get to live in people's highlights. We get to live in their highlight reel. And there's something that's really beautiful about that. Everything that we prepare and everything that we study and all the details that go into operating a restaurant is to be able to give somebody an amazing experience and what they are saying is the best part of my day today. Well, there you go. The year that was for the Entree Leadership Podcast in 2019. And here's the deal. If you listen to this podcast episode today, I know one thing to be true. You are a growth-oriented individual. And that means I know another thing to be true. You are a person who is already planning your reading list 
and your reading goals for the year of 2020. And we wanted to do our part. We've got a resource that we share every single year that's one of our most popular free resources that we give to our audience. It's the Entree Leadership Reading Guide. These are the books we believe every business owner, business leader, and growth-oriented individual should be reading to make sure they are on top of their game. So if you want to get this free resource, text 100 books to 33444. That's one zero zero books to three three four four four, or you can just click the link that's in the show notes. Well, hey, from me personally as the host of this program, but also from our entire team, we want to thank you, the audience. Thank you for listening to this every single week. You are why we do this, and you are what makes this podcast worth it. Our team puts a ton of work into this, and you putting this content into action to impact and change and influence the lives of others, we get so stoked about that. So make sure you know that there are 900 people in Nashville, Tennessee that are rooting for you, that are cheering for you and that are your biggest fans as you charge into 2020. And speaking of 2020, I want to let you know the plans we have on the books for the Entree Leadership Podcast. Folks, it's only getting bigger, badder, and better. So make sure you hit that subscribe button. Also, if you would, click the link that's in the show notes to fill out the survey. We read your comments every single week about how we can improve this program, how we can add more value to you, the business leader, and the business owner. On behalf of Tim Hull, Zach Estes, Will Rudder, the entire Entree leadership team, I'm Alex Judd. Thank you so much for an incredible 2019. We will see you again in 2020. If you enjoy this podcast, you should check out other great podcasts from the Ramsey Network, like The Rachel Cruz Show. Hey guys, it's Rachel Cruz, and I'm so excited to tell you about my podcast. A lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck, they're in debt, they don't even know where to begin, but they have this need, this want to get in control of their money. And if that's you, you have come to the right spot. So in each episode, you're going to get a ton of inspiration and practical advice. If you've not subscribed to The Rachel Cruz Show podcast, make sure you do it today. To hear full episodes, just search Rachel Cruz wherever you listen to podcasts or go to rachelcruz.com.